Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. This week, we sit down with author Amanda Schuster, who's an expert on the New York cocktail scene. And not just the scene itself, but how cocktails in the Big Apple have developed and evolved over the years. I think it's fair to say that New York dominates the East Coast cocktail scene. I mean, it dominates the East Coast altogether in terms of its influence. Most of us non-New Yorkers have kind of an intuitive sense of how important it is as a source of cultural and culinary inspiration for the rest of the country, but even that seems to be a bit of an understatement. Well, in this episode, Amanda and I try and dig into precisely why New York became such a giant in the international cocktail scene, identify some of the most important bars and bartenders along the way, and even make a few observations about where NYC's cocktail scene is heading. Amanda's book, New York Cocktails, an elegant collection of over 100 recipes inspired by the Big Apple, is available at most major booksellers, and we've got a link to it over on the show notes page for this episode at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. But as usual, before we jump into the interview, I'd like to give you the chance to make yourself a drink. This week's featured cocktail is the Sherry Cobbler. I know, I know, you thought it was going to be the Manhattan, but here at the Modern Bar Cart Podcast, we strive to avoid such low-hanging fruit and go off the beaten path a bit. Now, the Sherry Cobbler is a pretty important proto-cocktail. And when I say proto-cocktail, I'm referring to those mixed drinks that predated the cocktail, but that kind of set the stage for what it would one day become. There's another couple reasons why the Sherry Cobbler is such an intriguing drink. First, it doesn't contain any hard spirits. Sherry is the only source of alcohol. And another cool aspect of the Sherry Cobbler is that you're kind of encouraged to use whatever seasonal fruit is available as a garnish, so it's always in motion with the natural changes of the earth. To make a Sherry Cobbler, you'll need three to four ounces of Sherry. Now there's a lot of different options out there. If you want a drier sherry cobbler, you can use something like a Fino or a Manzanilla. Uh, if you're going sort of middle of the road, you might want to use an Amontillado. And then if you're going for almost like a darker, sweeter type, you can use an Oloroso, which is the longest aged, kind of most oxidized type of sherry. So again, three to four ounces of sherry, a half ounce of simple syrup, two orange slices, and then that seasonal fruit and mint to garnish. And to make this, you're gonna take those orange slices, muddle them in the bottom of a cocktail shaker with the simple syrup, then add your ice and sherry, shake that and strain it into a highball glass filled with crushed ice. Finally, all you need to do is garnish with your seasonal fruit and mint and enjoy. We talk a bit about the sherry cobbler later on in this episode and if you want a double dose of Sherry information, please check out our amazing interview with Chantal Seng in episode 52. And now, back to the city that never sleeps. 
Some of the topics I discuss with New York cocktail author Amanda Schuster include how she used her deep connections in the New York bar scene to help create her book, New York Cocktails, on an insanely tight deadline. Seriously, I'm amazed that she was able to pull this off and make it look easy. The history of cocktails in New York, which starts with the first celebrity bartenders way back in the 1800s, goes straight through Prohibition and the dark ages of the mid-20th century, and lands in today's cocktail renaissance. Tips for exploring New York's cocktail scene if you're visiting for the first time, or really if you're visiting a certain part of the city for the first time. Not quite sure if you guys have heard, but it's a large-ish city. An overview of some of the most important figures that helped spur and inspire the cocktail resurgence in the late 90s and early 2000s. Why cocktail strainers might just be the only thing standing between chaos and order, and much, much more. Before we dive in here, I think it's important to note that it's very difficult to talk about influential bars or bartenders without it seeming a bit like inside baseball or shop talk. There's a lot of important people, and when you start listing names or listing bars, they sort of start to blur together, especially if you're new to cocktails and you haven't really encountered that before. We'll definitely be returning to a number of these figures down the road in more depth as we continue to explore cocktail technique, history, and culture. But in the meantime, here's what I'd recommend. If you hear the name of a person or a bar that intrigues you, please take that opportunity to do a little of your own research so that you can better understand how that person or establishment shaped the cocktail movement. Most of these folks have written books, and there's also a lot of great content on YouTube that can help you get a good sense of what these important bartenders are all about. So go ahead, I give you permission, dive down that rabbit hole, and I promise you won't be disappointed. And with that, let's kick off this fascinating journey through New York City with cocktail author Amanda Schuster. Amanda, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So today we are sitting down and having a little remote chat with Amanda Schuster, who is the author of a book that caught my eye called New York Cocktails, an elegant collection of over 100 recipes inspired by the Big Apple. So I'm hoping that we might start by having Amanda, you introduce yourself and then um, dig into this book and all of the amazing kind of New York details that you were able to collect in it. Okay. Um, well, briefly about me, um, I'm currently the editor-in-chief of AlcoholProfessor.com, and I wrote this book um, that came out a year ago. I wrote it in January of 2017, and it came out in September of 2017. Um, I've worked – I'm actually a trained sommelier, and I worked very briefly as a sommelier but hated it and ended up in the retail sector. sector and. I've always been a writer and it just kind of evolved from there that I, that I became a wine and spirits and cocktail writer. Got it. So can you tell us a little bit about alcoholprofessor.com? Alcoholprofessor.com is an online site about beer, wine, spirits, and cocktails that is the editorial arm of the international beverage competitions. And it's been going now since 2013 
Um, and I'm really proud of what we've been able to build. Um, Adam Levy is the founder of it. He's the founder of the competitions and wanted somebody to, you know, to create an online magazine that was a little bit different than, than everything that was out there at the time. And I, I feel that we've succeeded pretty well. Yeah, it's certainly a, a well-known publication. So how did that background lead to you publishing this book? And I guess, how does New York City play into that? I was actually approached to write this book, and that is not the typical way these things happen. Most cocktail book writers have an agent. The agent obviously you know, pitches the, the book to various publishing houses and things go from there. Um, this, this happened, uh, New York press had already published Paris cocktails and New Orleans cocktails and they wanted somebody to do New York and Carlo DeVito, who was working with them, recommended me and we had a conversation about it. But then I found out that I had to write it in six weeks, <laughs> but I somehow managed to do it. And luckily for me, it was a tough thing to do in six weeks, particularly since I still had to work full time while I was writing it, but which is not something I would recommend to anybody, by the way. But luckily for me, I had a relationship with a lot of the people who were featured in the book. And so I could just say, hey, you know, I really love this cocktail. Can you just send me the recipe and a picture? It'll be in there. It'll be great. <laughs> Hopefully everything will work out. And that's kind of how it came together. So, it, you know, people have this glamorous idea of me having having, you know, a, a budget to go to all these cocktail bars and taste all these different things and decide what was going to be in the book. When in reality, I had a lot of what was going to be there already in my head. Sure. And it, it must have been nice to at least have those contacts to call upon as sort of a crowdsourcing of, of certain aspects of the book, even though you still had to kind of outline it and arrange it and execute it. It, it must have been nice to have that community support, at least from the industry side. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's absolutely no way I could have done this without them. For sure. For sure. That seems to be one of the perks, at least in my experience of, of being in this sort of cocktail adjacent line of work is that uh, the service industry is uh, a very close knit group. And, and when you're in with them, you do seem to be in with them and uh, they, they do definitely come through in those situations I find. Well, you know, it's interesting too. I mean, you say in with them and I think you don't always know <clears throat> if you're in. And I, you know, even though I've been working with so many of these people for such a long period of time, you know, I still feel, I still felt really, really excited when somebody like Joaquin Simo was so keen to speak with me or Dale DeGroff. That was a big one. When Dale DeGroff, you know, took time in an afternoon on one of the coldest days in January when he wasn't feeling so great and to to discuss his role in the cocktail world with me. And yeah, it's these I think you really do build an incredible community with these people. The, I mean, obviously, it's really nice to make cocktails in home, and that's what this book is all about. But you, you really can't do that without visiting the bars and getting to meet these people. Sure. And I'm hoping that maybe later on we can, as we dig into the details, return to Dale. I actually uh, was doing a little bit of prep work for this interview because I am admittedly not an expert on New York City uh, or the bar scene there. So, you know, a couple of Dale DeGraw videos came up. So really cool to hear kind of the uh, community nature of this book, considering the freakishly short amount of time you had to actually <laughs> assemble it. But 
Can you maybe just give the, give us like an overview of how the book is set up in terms of balancing the the recipe aspect of it with sort of like teaching the reader the role that New York has in current and past cocktail culture? Like, can you explain like wh- what the approach was? Sure. I mean, I think New York City is its own bar patron in a way. And it's seen so very many bars over the past couple of centuries. You know, people people really think about now when they think about New York City, they think about everything that's happened in the past, let's say, 20 years. But there was a life in New York even before the 20th century. Um, some of the there were star tenders at that time. You know, you had people like Jerry Thomas and you had people like Harry Johnson and this guy that was known as the only William Schmidt who were written up in various newspapers and people knew to go see them at their bars and and get cool drinks made on the fly, very much in the same way that they do now at at certain bars. You know, obviously there was no such thing as as Instagram and and there was no style section in the New York Times. So it took a little longer for people to recognize the importance of these drinks and what these people were doing. But I feel as though... You know, there's always there's always been something about New York that's had, you know, a communal aspect. There's always been a place you you think about, let's say, the 1950s when, you know, in the height of Swing Street and the Stork Club and and all of those great movies like the, the Sweet Smell of Success that take place at a time when people would would have the most important conversations of their lives in a, in a smoky bar, you know, filled with all these characters milling about. And I think that's always been something that New York City has contributed to to the world in in um, the cocktail world, particularly. It does certainly loom larger than life in many respects, both physical and kind of culturally in our in our society. So did you maybe did you like start with uh, giving a background of that culture and that history and then move into the cocktails or did you kind of intersperse the cocktails with your discussion of everything else that's going on? I think I always had it in the back of my head as I was writing the book. And I, one thing I had to really think about as I was writing was how do I explain certain details to somebody who's never been to New York? what what a certain experience is like. And one of the things I mentioned very early on in the book is what it's like to sit in a bar and order your first Manhattan and to think about and to think about the history of the book and all the people who have consumed that cocktail, that one cocktail that everybody knows that, you know, is so iconic to New York City. And so you really have to think about what the backdrop of New York means to all of these drinks. And I think, and I think that was really, that was really the approach that was in my head. There was a lot going on in my head at the time. This was a very, this was a very, very difficult thing to write, especially at the time I was writing it because I was given the assignment just as our current president was inaugurated and the, and the way the news cycle was suddenly flashing before us so quickly in a way that none of us had ever experienced before. And I had to really find a way to tune all of that out and remember what my job was at hand. And that was very, very tricky. Yeah, it did certainly display an uptick that I don't think any of us had, had really anticipated. It, going back and looking at my own media consumption habits, I definitely also kind of shoved certain 
devices and or mediums into a whole and, and stop looking at them all together. So, yeah, that, that does sound like a really tricky thing. The good news is we all needed a drink, right? So that was at least something easy to write about. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty validating. I remember not, not too shortly after that, uh, a buddy of mine and I got together and we invented a little cocktail for Instagram called the Trump Sour. And <laughs> we had a, a ridiculous, like thinly peeled orange poof thing at the top as, as the garnish. And so at least we were able to make a light of it, uh, in, in a manner of speaking. So let's talk about I guess geography slightly in the development of the cocktail. It, it seems to me that today, maybe less so than it was in the sort of early days of the cocktail, but even today we've got New York, we've got San Francisco, we've got New Orleans and a few other cities. There's some really great stuff going on in places like Portland and Washington DC as well. And I'm okay. sure in many other great places like Chicago and, and in, in Texas, but really New York. New Orleans, San Francisco, these are the, the titans of the early days. And so I'm kind of curious to hear what role New York City really, really had from somebody who's who's more of an expert on the subject. Well, as I was saying earlier in our conversation, you know, there were some very early star tenders that come from New York, like Jerry Thomas and 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 Harry Johnson. And, and um, even though Harry Craddock is, is British and is most famous for his work at the Savoy, he did spend four years in New York City <laughs> before Prohibition sent him sent him back to Europe. And, you know, it really the city really kind of shaped a culture, I think, in, in terms in terms of cocktails that has really influenced so many other cities and so many other ways people drink. And, you know, Prohibition, even though it was a time you weren't supposed to be able to get cocktails, was a very festive time for cocktails. And there were all these things that came out of out of New York City then, too. Um, one of the great books to read uh, for further reading that I would highly recommend if you can find it is um, Al Hirschfeld, who is known as a caricaturist, wrote this incredible book that was basically a guide to how to drink in New York city during the prohibition and, you know, would tell you where a bar is and who the bartender was and what you could expect to drink there. And it was, and it was really fascinating. So I, I think in a lot of ways, you know, I, I don't ever want to say that New York is the center of cocktail culture because I think so many other cities around the world could also make that claim. But we're certainly a very huge part of it. Maybe we're one of the, in the top five anyway. Sure. And I think it's it's certainly fair to say that it's it's a, a large, especially early on, it was the the big port. And so you had the influence, you know, you really had that foreign influence coming in. And yes. that affects not just food and customs, but it but also, you know, the, um, the the cocktail ingredients that you have access to as well. I know um, even these days listening to New York City bartenders talk. I listened to a program that you're probably familiar with called the Speakeasy. Sure. Um, I've been on it. Uh, that, that does make sense. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, listening to Souther and Damon speak, they they very often say, you know, oh, well, we're, we're spoiled here. We can get anything we want. Right. And that was, I, I suppose, even more the case back when transportation, refrigeration and some of these other things we take for granted today were just not a thing. Well, I think that. Yeah, that's that's certainly the case, although I don't really think people were too fussed about, you know, using fresh whatever in their drinks. I think it was more about the service aspect of it and hospitality and what it was like to, to visit a bar there. I think 
there's always been kind of a fine dining a connection between fine dining and and cocktail service in New York. Maybe that was lost a little bit, you know, as as things were kind of losing their way after prohibition and and the um and after repeal, but for the most part that's always been something that's very important to cocktail culture and even and even saloon culture, like never mind cocktails, you know. Yeah, you you mention immigration and and the ports, you know, some of the earliest Irish bars there was always that kind of aspect in them too. I think that's just always been a part of New York City culture. Right. Interesting. I, I didn't. I don't know if if you had just asked me that that would have been in kind of my um, family feud top five of things that were connected with the original cocktail bar. <laughs> so can we maybe pick a few? I obviously the book has dozens and dozens and dozens of cocktails, but I wonder if you had to pick a one to three of your favorite cocktails that were invented in New York, what would you select and, and why? Yeah, that's really tough because I think, first of all, it's really hard to say what was invented in, in New York before a certain time. The Manhattan is is always going to be my favorite cocktail. And one of the things that I think so is so fun about it is that it's so adaptable, right? You've got your, I mean, it's supposed to be whiskey and vermouth and bitters, but then there's so many other things you can do with it. Does it have to be a whiskey base? No, it doesn't. It can be rum. It can be tequila. It could be mezcal. Does it have to be vermouth or one kind of vermouth? There's the perfect Manhattan with two different kinds of vermouth, or maybe there's vermouth and an Amaro, or maybe, you know, some other fortified wine in there and the bitters can, there's so many bitters these days. And so I think, I think that's really of any cocktail out of New York City culture that was, that was invented here. I think they can prove that it was invented in New York, although nobody's entirely sure when and how. Um, there was even a book written about it by Philip Green that was a wonderful book, but he even can't really pinpoint the exact moment and the exact person. But, but we can pinpoint people who have put it on their menu and adapted it, say, to a certain neighborhood in New York. You know, maybe this is the Carroll Gardens or maybe this is the, you know, Astoria Queens or, or however, however you want to adapt it. But I think, I think of anything that's one of the most important ones. Oh, most definitely. And I, I would say that it would be on the Mount Rushmore of cocktails without a doubt. Yeah. So, what you were just mentioning, do people who create cocktail menus in New York actively go out and do what you were describing where they take the Manhattan and then they give it a little spin that kind of reflects their neighborhood or their area? I think when you're doing something with that kind of a stirred and boozy drink, it's hard not to riff it off of something else just be just because it's very hard to be so original with something that it isn't reminiscent of something else. But I don't think that's everybody's approach. I think sometimes it's about, okay, um, I've been given this task to play with this base spirit. You know, like I have a Singani in front of me. What am I going to do with it? You know, and so you have to, you have to think about what it tastes like, what other things taste good with it, what might be surprising. And so I think a lot of these days, and because there are so many more ingredients that are available to us, both fresh and in a bottle, that bartenders have had the opportunity to be even more creative about about the way they go about creating a cocktail. And maybe it's not even based on ingredient. Maybe it's based on an idea, a song, 
you know, one of the things that was so much fun in the past, this past summer is I published an article for alcohol professor that was all Duran Duran based cocktails. Right. And so, and so everybody had to build a cocktail around a song or an era of, of the band. And I'm doing it again with Madonna now. And, and so this has been a lot of fun. And so, and so sometimes an inspiration, you know, comes from many different places and we have the luxury right now of, of building from that. Yeah. The issue, or maybe it's not even an issue, but the conversation between simplicity and complexity in cocktails, uh, or perhaps maybe, uh, a, a different way to put it would be, uh, essential versus a little bit esoteric in cocktails is always something that interests me. So besides the Manhattan, I, I can kind of sympathize with you having a, a, a tough time just kind of picking a few different cocktails that are just like the, the quintessence of New York. What if we instead scrap that and instead try to give some advice to somebody who might be coming to New York for the first time, what might they want to do, see, or order? Or is there any approach to going to a cocktail bar in New York City that might be different than somewhere else? And I only ask that having never been there. <laughs> I think that, you know, people always say, okay, somebody's coming to New York for the first time and they want to try cocktails you know, send them to one of the iconic cocktail bars in the city. And that's all, that's definitely a good idea. There's no question that that's, that's not a good idea, but I think that one should if they've never come to New York before, one, one should experience a bar that's kind of always been here. Go to some place like Keen's, go to some place like, I don't know, even McSorley's. That's not a cocktail bar. You're, you're only going to get beer there, but at least you're going to experience New York in a, in a certain way. Or go to, go to a great Irish bar. Go to one of the great hotel bars like Bemelman's Bar or the King Cole Bar. Or I love now also in modern day, I love the bar at the Surrey Hotel. If you can't get into Bemelman's, go around the corner of the Surrey. Highly recommend it. And, and just kind of experience what the, what the sort of, what a New York fixture really feels like and the sort of people who wander in there and, and what they order and, and, and the conversations that they're having. It's kind of fascinating. So it's almost like you're kind of combining, it's almost like the gastro tourism in the inverse, whereas instead of trying to go to a place and enjoy the food and kind of ignore the other things, you're almost going to a place and then putting the culture up front and, and having the food as the, the, the background that influences your experience of the culture almost. Yeah, I think I think that's a good way of putting it. And then obviously there are so many great cocktail bars to visit and you can find one in, in practically any neighborhood at this point, too. And so, you know, but but definitely experience something that's so quintessentially New York first, then go to one of those newer places and and experience what what the what the hospitality is like there and and what the crowd is like there. It's it's a very interesting thing and they're they are two completely different worlds. They really are. Right, and it seems it seems like even between the various boroughs and the and the neighborhoods within the boroughs there's such a a great degree of complexity and diversity that you can't do it all in one trip. So I I'd say okay. that scrap that scrap that idea right off the bat. Do it by neighborhood. I mean, this is the funniest thing, you know, people 
say to me all the time, okay, I'm coming to New York. Where should I go? And I said, you're going to have to narrow that down a little bit. Where are you staying? What, what neighborhoods do you think you're going to be in? What time of day? You know, there's so many, there's so many factors that play into that. Sure. Sure. If you had to kind of identify some of the iconic bars and, and some these might exist and they might not, uh, I'm thinking uh-huh. a, a classic example might be, you know, like milk and honey being a very iconic bar. Um, but then there's some others that are kind of still up and running. Uh, are there any of these bars that really can be identified as movers and shakers in the cocktail, the cocktail renaissance as we know it today? Absolutely. I mean, you have Death and Company, of course, and Pegu Club and and yeah, Milk and Honey, which is, you know, now Attaboy. And it's still a very similar experience. So I definitely recommend going there and Angel Share. You know, people people don't give Angel Share enough credit. They opened in the 1990s. <laughs> Major precursor. In fact, you know, Sasha Petrosky was was very influenced by his visits to Angel Share when he opened Milk and Honey. Um, and you have Clover Club, of course, which is one of I'm, I'm lucky enough to live very close to Clover Club. And they were Julie was one of the first people in Brooklyn, period, to bring that type of cocktail experience to Brooklyn. And it was definitely coming at a time when a lot of people still had this idea in their head that if they were going to a cocktail bar, it was a bunch of people standing around and spilling stuff on one another. And, you know, this is a place you sit down, you have a proper drink, you have some food. And I think that's that's the kind of experience that's really sort of been brought into the modern age. And so many other bars have kind of come up around that idea of, of you know, that that kind of experience that's a little bit. Um, more upscale, a little less hectic. It's fun. Sure. And I, I think to kind of flesh this out more for our listeners, who many of whom tend to be home bartenders. So in this day and age, they're, they're kind of the recipients of all this amazing information that we have via social media and the internet, yeah. but they might be slightly divorced in many cases from the forces that caused that to be. So I'm going to throw out a couple of things and kind of stumble in here. And I'm hoping that you can redirect me when I either misspeak or I'm just completely wrong. Okay. So you mentioned this idea of a cocktail bar as this noisy place where people are spilling drinks on each other, sort of like the Tom Cruise movie cocktail. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's the kind of the idea that I had in my head. Yes, exactly. So that was big eighties, nineties, probably even before then. But one of the things that is really interesting to me as a, I guess, a a document from that time were were the rules from Milk and Honey. Can you speak a little bit about those? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't remember what they were off the top of my head, except except, (laughs) well, a couple of them. But the basic idea of the rules in Milk and Honey, um, which are very funny to me, are about respecting one another in a bar. And you know, people come to a cocktail bar for several reasons. They come because they they want a great drink, of course. Sometimes they come to be alone. Sometimes they come not to be bothered by anybody, but just to have a nice drink and, you know, sit deep in thought or, or go with a book or, you know, just have kind of a moment. Maybe there's a, there's a conversation just between them and the bartender. They don't want some stranger coming up to them and bothering them. And that was one of the things that was very important 
I think, to Sasha when he came up with with those rules of milk and honey and weren't supposed to hit on other people at the bar unless it, unless that wasn't, you know, obvi- very obviously encouraged. You weren't supposed to bring people to the bar who would cause a ruckus, you know, who, who would get out of hand. I, there's also an interesting thing in New York City, and I don't know how – um, how much this is true in other cities right now, but there are several cocktail bars that I can think of off the top of my head where standing at the bar is not allowed. If you're seated at the bar, they only let enough people into the bar at capacity so that they could either sit comfortably at the bar or if there are adjacent tables, they can fit at the tables. But if there's no room for them, then they're not standing. The first time I was in a bar, and it was interestingly enough not a cocktail bar, it was just a, a more of a beer bar here in D.C., but the first time I encountered that in my, I would say, early to mid-20s, I, I got immediately really worried that I was not going to be able to afford this place because <laughs> there was going to be a server then coming to my table. I couldn't just go grab a drink and mingle somewhere. Oh. Uh, but it was really interesting how such a simple rule uh, just kind of transformed the entire atmosphere of the place and made it laid back by several more degrees. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. When Rain's Law Room first opened and I went there, I wasn't crazy about it. And right now I would actually name it as what is as one of my favorite bars in New York. I didn't get it at the time. I wasn't happy because I couldn't see my drinks being made. I couldn't interact with the bartender. I like, I'm somebody who really likes to sit at the bar. I like to have that experience where I'm having a com- conversation with the bartender. There's a ritual, you know, watching the stirring of my martini, um, watching the ingredients, maybe trying some new spirit in them or, or, you know, giving some direction. So I wasn't, I wasn't too happy with drinks just kind of appearing in front of me and having to ring a, a little bell and, and that whole thing. But, but now I get it. You know, there's definitely sort of a parlor room aspect to it that, that they were going for that makes, that makes sense to me now. I don't think it works for every bar that tries to do that though. For sure. Yeah. It has to, it has to come at the right time and be in, in, in the right context, I think. So, so those rules were part of, I think, it's a really easy to point at example of a group of people who tried to not forcibly, but very explicitly redirect the energy within yeah. a drinking culture. And yeah. they were simultaneously doing things behind the bar. I, I was watching this video today with Dale DeGroff, you know, suggesting that, you know, his use when he was working in the rainbow room, his, his employment of uh, fresh citrus juices, which today to us would seem somewhat unrevolutionary, was, was really a big deal at that time. It's a huge deal because we're talking in the, let's say the 60s, 70s, early 80s, at least up until the 90s, where if you ordered a whiskey sour at a bar, you would get a drink that had whiskey, Lord knows what kind of whiskey, probably not bourbon and probably not anything very good if it was a bourbon and a sour mix, which was usually powdered or with art made with, you know, artificial juice that came in a bottle and a lot of sugar, a lot of syrup, a lot of like corn syrup and crap in it. And and so, you know, now we think, oh, my God, a whiskey sour. Oh, and it has, you know, never mind that it would have had like an egg flip in it or something like that. But, you know, now you go to a bar and I would like a whiskey sour, please. And OK, do you want that with egg white? <laughs> so it's a very different experience. Right, right. And then these people went on to kind of 
kind of branch out, take on their own disciples that then pollinated other places and other cities. And, and I find a really pleasing parallel uh, between this pollination in the cocktail renaissance and, and the first time that cocktails really took the, the United States by force in that that time was around the advent of the telegraph and train travel and refrigerated boxcars and these things that made it possible in the first place were huge revolutions. And I think the, um, you know, the, the having New York as a nucleus where these new ideas were tested, approved, and then sent forth into the United States is kind of a really nice century, century and a half later parallel. Oh yeah, absolutely. And to speak to, you know, your idea about, pollination and, and fresh ingredients, one of the things that just popped into my head, you know, is one of my favorite drinks in the summer is a sherry cobbler. And there was this great bar at the turn of the 20th century downtown in Soho back when it was more of a garden district where it was basically like, I think they were only open in the summer. Um, it's called Niblo's Garden. William Niblo was the proprietor and his wife made most of the drinks. She probably is the person who came up with the sherry cobbler, although he gets all the credit, of course. And it was basically like a big garden party and a theater troupe actually grew out of, I think, the conversations that were having they were having in the garden. So if you Google Niblo's Garden, the first thing you're going to see is stuff about the theater troupe. And maybe if you dig a little bit more, you'll find out about the bar that they had back there. But yeah, so I mean, Sherry Cobbler, you needed to have fresh things in that cocktail. Right, right. And especially at that time, it was that that was a big deal and kind of a, a status mark. And, you know, certainly people who have enough leisure time to put together a theater troupe would, would probably be the prime audience for that. But now yep. I think we all get to benefit. Yep, absolutely. So last question before we jump into the lightning round here. Obviously, we've talked about the history a little bit here. I'm curious about what's going on in New York City like right now. You seem to be, you know, very entrenched, maybe not entrenched is the wrong world, but very um, interconnected with uh, the happenings in New York in terms of what's hot, what's not. So could you give us kind of a state of the union of New York City's cocktail culture right now? It's a really interesting time right now because, you know, we discussed some of the new bars that came up in the cocktail renaissance and thank goodness they're still going strong. I'm, I, and it's very important to me to, to, for everybody to please remember what came before. And, you know, as much as a, a brand new shiny bar is a, is a, is a great thing to visit. And it's so exciting, especially with, I think one of the things that we're seeing right now that's so fun is bartenders who came up in a really great bar. Like right now we have, Masa, who was working at Saxon and Parole, just opened um, a place with the Cocktail Kingdom team in the West Village called Katana Kitten, which is sort of based on a on a you know late night Tokyo talk cocktail bar kind of vibe, and it's so 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 fun. Highly recommend it. You have you know uh, you have people like Joaquin Sino, who a few years ago opened Pouring Ribbons. So you have people who sort of came up in the in that new cocktail renaissance who are now branching out and opening their own places, and that's really that's a really cool thing. And there, I think there is going to be more of a shine away from this sort of fancy fine dining aspect of of ordering cocktails to something that's a bit more casual and something that feels like a sort of a place that you would sort of stumble into. There's also a really strange thing going on that I'm not so sure I like. <laughs> um, Wait, where... can, I, can I can I pause you and see if I can guess what it is? 
Okay, sure. Is it the pop-ups? Oh, pop-ups are fine. Okay. You know, if you're talking about the Christmas pop-up, pop-ups, those are okay. Those are great. You know, they're hard to get into. They get really crowded and sticky, but man, they're fun. No, that's not what I was thinking. <laughs> well, now, now I'm intrigued. <laughs> so there are bars that have that have now centered on ingredients. They're they're ingredient focused, and so you know, this is a whiskey bar, this is a tequila bar, this is a you know gin bar, whatever, and that's great. But there's a new thing now where people are coming up with what they decide are healthy, quote unquote, cocktails, which I just think is appalling. A cocktail is not healthy. Anything that I love them. We love them. We're discussing them. You, you founded your podcast on them. I hold, I wrote a whole book about them. I founded much of my career on them. They're great. They're fun. It's so, it's so, you know, the whole culture of surrounding them is, is fun. It is not healthy. I don't care what ingredients you're putting in them. Once you mix them with alcohol, they stop being healthy. So, you know, and we have these untested, um, ingredients like CBD, um, Nobody really knows what kind of CBD you're getting when you buy those little extracts. Do they really contain the stuff? How much of the stuff do they contain? It says 250 milligrams. Is it really, you know, um, what's it been sweetened with? There are people who have allergies to certain plant-based sweeteners. And so, you know, there's all these bars that are popping up that are like, oh, our whole thing is that we're, you know, mixing all of these herbs together and we're doing like an apothecary kind of thing. And, and I just, no stop it. Yeah. It's, uh, I think I agree with you that it's a fallacy that, that cocktails could ever be healthy. Uh, we kind of like them for the, their effects on how they relax us and make us better social people. And I think in, mm -hmm. in that respect, they can facilitate healthy conversation. They can relax you when you're stressed out occasionally. And I think there are, you know, if you could put some heavy air quotes around that, those could be considered health benefits. But certainly if, if you're just throwing a bunch of, you know, CBD oil in there, you might as well, you know, to a certain extent, just, you know, throw in a, a, a you know, a pinch of ambient dust or something. And Right, exactly. You know, it's like, oh, great. I have an Advil cocktail. You know, that's going to make me feel better. I won't get a hangover. Stop it. Just sure. Sure. <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> Well, and uh, if you're going to identify a risk of being in a place that moves so fast and where there are so many people, you know, it, a risk might be that there's going to be a bunch of stuff that pops up just to facilitate a fad. And, yeah. you know, the hope is that as since you know, you have all those amazing bars that did start in the early days and are still up and running because their concept is so time proven, you know, hopefully looking to them can at least alleviate some of the, the temporary annoyance uh, when you see yet another strange fad pop up. Although it's funny, you know, a bar, Amoria Margo started up as a pop up and it and the bitters craze has been so popular that it stayed. And thank goodness, because it's a wonderful bar. Um, and that's, that would definitely be one of the bars that I, I would recommend anybody who's coming to New York visit. It's just it's just so great. Uh, 226 square feet or something like that. Yeah, it's really, really small. Um, and I, I always joke that it's kind of like a clown car because it, even when it, in its most crowded moments, like, you know, 1130 on a Saturday night and it seems packed, you can always seem to squeeze another couple of people in there and they will absolutely get served. Sure. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully uh, I can get down there. And uh, we actually also produce our own our own bitters here at Modern Bar Car. So hopefully we can uh, get Southern to uh, stack those behind some of his his uh, tried and true on the bar. 
I'm sure he'd be into it. Yeah. Okay, let's do some lightning round. Okay. So you you kind of alluded to this earlier. What is your favorite cocktail? And if you can't name a favorite of all time, what's something you've more recently fallen in love with? Okay. So um, my favorite kind of cocktail isn't really one cocktail, but I tend to be more drawn to spirit forward and stirred drinks like a Manhattan, but not necessarily a Manhattan. Um, I love martinis also. I, but it's, you know, it's really hard for me to say this is my favorite cocktail because it really depends on what kind of day I'm having or, you know, the, the weather or what time of, what time of day it is. You know, there's, there are a lot of factors that go into what I, what I call for. So. So if you were in the Lord's cocktail bar, whatever the cocktail bar in the sky is right now, and you had to make a Manhattan, meaning you had infinite ingredients, infinite whatever, right at your fingertips, what, uh, what base spirit would you use? What vermouth uh, slash Amaro and what bitter, if any? Oh, man. Um, I mean, I think I prefer to have my, my Manhattan with a whiskey base. It's really funny because one of the one of the earliest articles about the Manhattan was written by David Wondrick, um, in Esquire, and he recommends this is this is so funny to me, Pappy Van Winkle Thirteen Year Rye, which is considered one of the most rare spirits out there. I mean, it is the absolute like golden unicorn of spirits. It's almost impossible to find. And if you can find it, almost impossible to afford. So I'm going to go with Pappy Van Winkle, 13 year ride. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, Hey, we're in the, we're in the Lord's bar, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, I honestly, I think that when you're making a Manhattan, it should be a really good chocolatey vermouth. And I still think that, you know, Carpano Antica um, is the is the best one for that. Um, best one for the job. And, and Amaro, I don't know. There's so many great ones out there. They all taste really good mixed with with booze and other things. That's that's I, I really can't say. Yeah. For sure, it is certainly a dilemma of, of riches at our at our fingertips right now. Um, yeah. it that's a funny David Wondrich story. I've never heard oh, that it's one. So hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I've been in the room with the guy at Tales of the Cocktail and a couple other you know readings, and it just seems like uh, I, you never know. But it seems like that might have been a joke. It wasn't, a, you know, I had a conversation with him about this recently and it wasn't a joke at the time. The thing is, there was a time not too long ago where that wasn't so hard to find. You know, Pappy Van Winkle wasn't such a big deal when I was working at Astor Wine and Spirits. Um, in the first couple of years, you know, we stocked the entire Pappy range and it, the bottles probably stayed up there for a couple of weeks before anybody went for them. And then all of a sudden, boom. Interesting. That crowd mentality really got you. Yeah. So if you were a cocktail tool or ingredient, what would you be and why? <laughs> um, I think I'd want to be a a strainer of some kind. I don't know if I'd want to be the Hawthorne strainer or the Julep strainer, but one of those, mostly because I would be taking in information and then filtering it for better consumption. So as a writer, I feel that that's partly my job and, and leaving out all of the jagged bits. Mm, interesting. I like that. Now, julep or Hawthorne, so that's an interesting question. I personally can't stand using julep strainers because I have giant hands, like like <laughs> really abnormally large hands. 
and I can't even manage using like a regular sh uh, like shaking tin to clamp that thing in there in just the right way to make it work. So I just never use my jewelry chain. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. Maybe maybe I need to find somebody to teach a master's class on that. Yeah, definitely. So if you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past, present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint us a picture. I really wish that I could have sipped a couple of cocktails during the real nitty gritty 1950s, you know, smoky cocktail bar era of Midtown going someplace that no longer exists like the Stork Club or Toot Shores or, um, or Jilly's. Um, I'd want to go there with somebody who worked in, who's in theater. So maybe Peter O'Toole before, before he, before he's had a few rounds, like if we're starting the evening, then Peter O'Toole before he's gotten too drunk, I think would be a really fascinating cocktail date. Okay. And what was he best known for just as a cliff note? Um, so star of Lawrence of Arabia and, um, and so many other great movies, you know, he's just, he's just one of the great, he's just one of my favorite actors of the, of the fifties and sixties and, and seventies. And, and he's known as somebody who really liked to have a good drink and was a lot of fun to be at, at a bar. And I just, I would love to have a conversation with him about what, what it's like to be working in, in theater and in that time when things were, you know, much more difficult. <laughs> um, and, you know, yeah, about literature, about about, you know, growing up in, in Ireland and, and and the UK, about so many things that are so not my so not a part of my own life. Mm, that's really interesting. We've never had that answer. That's but that's uh, obviously seems like a really fascinating guy in Lawrence of Arabia, one of the you know most massive kind of blockbusters of the 20th century. Yeah, which, you know, and, and much like so many things like him walking into bars, he just kind of stumbled into it, I think. Sure. And, and and that also would have been in this incredible time, you know, just to people watch and to, and to see the way people were dressed. You know, this is this is the time when men still had to wear hats and and, you know, ladies dressed a certain way. And and the way people even the way the manner in which people were served drinks was different back then. Right. It's just, it's just a completely different era than we live in now. So much so, so much has changed. Do you think Mad Men gives an accurate portrayal of that time period or uh, is it a little bit um, kitschified? Oh, who knows? I mean, I wasn't alive during it. I think that they have to kitschify it a little bit to to make it seem a bit more glamorous than it was. But, I, you know, it's a lot of people that I've spoken to who were alive at that time um, think it's a fairly accurate portrayal. You know, it might be a little bit less greedy. It's probably a bit more cleaned up. Mm. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. Wow, that's a re really, really cool answer. Really like that. Thanks. So we mentioned earlier this book by Al Hirschfield, Where to Go to uh, Get a Drink During Prohibition. And obviously there's some noteworthy books that came out of the New York bar scene, like the Death & Co. book. I believe yeah. The Dead Rabbit has one. Mm -hmm. Are there any, like uh, those New York City books aside, which we will link to in the show notes, uh, are there any books that have been particularly influential or enjoyable for you as you've kind of come up? When I was first getting into this, I mean, there weren't as many books as there are now, obviously, but I think some of the most important ones are, you know, Joy of Mixology by Gaz Regan, 
Um, you have Spiritist Journey by um, Anastasia Miller and, and Jared Brown that really tracks the evolution of the cocktail in a way that nobody had done before. I love Mixologist, the Journal of the American Cocktail, um, and all of these writers, you know, lend their two cents or or two jiggers or whatever, however you want to phrase it. Right, two drams. Um, Two drams about about uh, you know some some of their earliest cocktail stories and that's that's a great compendium to have I would say that that's a must read for anybody. I love the Deans of Drink by by Jared Brown that you know traces the what a, some of what we discussed earlier about about um, the early cocktail scene in the 20th century and even late 19th century in New York. Um, obviously, Dave Wondrich's punk punch is really important. Um, I love to have and to have another by by Philip Green, which is um, which is all about everything that Ernest Hemingway drank and the and the cocktails and and drinks that were in his stories. And in the end, at the end of it, it's so fun. There are all these different bartenders from around the world who lend their insights and recipes. And it's just it's just a great book to have. There's so many right now. Booze and vinyl that just came out is is a ton of fun. And it's all it's all about, you know, creating a, a listening party with with records and alcohol. Mm, it seems to be inspiring some of your your latest moves and articles. <laughs> no, I really I have to say, you know, as much as I love those guys, I love the Darlingtons. Hi, Andre and Tania. Um, I had thought about doing some of these things on my own. And, and I definitely tried very hard not to be too influenced by that book as I've been coming up with some of these other ideas. OK, so we will compile those and have a pretty exhaustive list on the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Obviously, some of these are, are, are repeats, but I think what we're going to do is at some point when maybe we get to the 100th episode or so, we'll put together a meta kind of analysis of the books that have been recommended. And so it's really helpful to have all these great options from somebody who's obviously very well read. Can I add one more? Yes. One more I should mention that just came out a couple of months ago is um, Drinking Like Ladies by um, Misty Kalkoffin and Kirsten Amon. And this is a really cool book because it's taking all of these um, incredible women throughout history, some of some of the unsung heroes of history and matching a cocktail to them. Some of some really fantastic, talented bartenders from around the world contributed to this book. And it's just it's such a great idea and it's so well put together definitely, definitely should be part of anybody's collection. Very cool. Well, I definitely have that book on a list of books that I am looking to read. So I think you just might have moved it up to the top. Yeah, definitely read it. <laughs> cool. Last thing in terms of advice, is there any advice you would give to somebody who's just starting to learn about or experiment with cocktails or home mixology? Read. Definitely read and and watch. I think it still is as as eloquent as so many of these writers are, it's still really hard to understand what it's what the experience is of what the whole cocktail experience is without actually going to a bar and watching somebody make the cocktails. I, you know, sure, you can watch things on YouTube and you can look at things on Instagram and anything that, you know, that has video streaming. But what you really need to do is go to a good cocktail bar and watch what happens. Sure. And uh, I, I totally relate to what you were saying earlier of your kind of objection to not having that seat at the bar where you get to have that perch. Yeah. So yeah, definitely great advice. 
Well, uh, Amanda, I really appreciate your time and yeah. uh, your insights on the New York cocktail scene. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Barcart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, an excellent book on New York cocktails by Amanda Schuster, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.